by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a desperation, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweeps your house clean of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Susan Salzberg is a longtime Buddhist teacher and writer, and many years ago, she had the opportunity to be visit with the Dalai Lama at a conference, a small conference. And so at one point, she had the opportunity to ask him a question, and the question she asked him is what about the suffering? What are your thoughts about the suffering of self-hatred? The Dalai Lama looks absolutely startled and confused. What is that, he asked. Salzburg tried to explain it to him. She talked about the feelings of judgment people have, the guilt, all the thoughts that start talking to you that lead to feelings of unworthiness and self-hatred. The Buddha just, I mean the Buddha, the Dalai Lama just shook his head. How can you think of yourself that way, he said, when everybody has a Buddha nature? Salzburg and the other conference attendants, mostly Buddhist teachers and psychologists from the U.S. and Europe, were equally astonished that the Dalai Lama did not know about self-hatred, unworthiness, and the pervasive sense of just not being good enough. For, what, what, for them, it was the water that they swam in, both professionally and personally. Our theme this month is hospitality. In the first week, we talked about how we welcome each other, and then we talked about the importance of welcoming the stranger. And last week, we heard about the incredible importance of showing hospitality to people who are undocumented immigrants. Hospitality, we have said, is to welcome with open arms whoever comes and whatever state they are in. It is treating others kindly with care and a generous spirit. And today we ask, are we hospitable to ourselves? Do we welcome ourselves? Are we kind to ourselves? Do we welcome all of our moods and thoughts? As Rumi puts it, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness that comes as an unexpected visitor? Do we treat ourselves with care? and a generous spirit. Well, if you do not, you are not particularly alone. <laughs> North Americans suffer from a plague of feelings of self-doubt, 
of unworthiness, of not good enoughness, and self-hatred. Personally, I have many aspects of myself that I would like to change. I would like to not suffer from fatigue. I would like to not be as late as I sometimes am. I would like to pay better attention. I would like to be more compassionate and loving. And I would really like to not have that strong impulse that I get to just disappear into my comfortable life when there is so much suffering in the world. There are many things that I would like to do better. And I suspect that many of us have such lists that we want to prove ourselves or do better. And maybe we have even worse lists, things about ourselves that are not possible to change that we don't like very well. Perhaps we want a different body, or we want to be smarter, or more organized, or younger, or older, or be a better speaker, or writer. And with litanies like this, it's really easy to not feel good enough, and to sometimes feel self-hatred. However, a spiritual truth taught in many faiths is that you cannot truly love another unless you love yourself. This was the primary teaching of Jesus, who said that people must love their enemies as themselves. And while we focus a lot on this idea of loving our enemies these days, we very rarely talk about that you have to love yourself to love your enemies. That's in the quote, that's in Jesus' teaching. And I used to try to take this teaching off it's often, because it's as well, it's in other traditions as well, and also psychologists tell us the same thing. So I, I thought that was kind of all crazy, because surely I could love someone if I didn't love myself. I experience feelings of love for family and friends all the time. And I just thought maybe I could just shift that feeling towards people I didn't like as well, <laughs> which hasn't gone particularly well, I have to tell you. <laughs> Unfortunately, or fortunately, the love of Jesus and other spiritual pe people isn't talking about that feeling we associate with people that we really hold in high regard, but it's an action. It is a way of being with others, whether we find them pleasant or not. It's being welcoming, being respectful focusing on what their gifts are, attempting to understand them and their views, and offering them compassion and acceptance. And we just can't do this if we aren't welcoming and respectful to ourselves. If we can't take pleasure in our own gifts and offer ourselves compassion and acceptance, it is really difficult to do this for the stranger. And it is even more difficult to do it for our enemies. It is very difficult to not condemn others with what we dislike about ourselves, particularly those things we don't we dislike about ourselves that we don't really acknowledge very well. It's sort of slip and slide on the edge of our consciousness. So treating others with love and compassion is absolutely essential to our faith. But this is not the main reason to love ourselves. The most important reason to love ourselves is that we deserve love, just like everybody else does. 
Love is transforming when we feel it for ourselves and for others. Love really matters. Love and compassion for ourselves opens us up. It frees us from having to be a particular way. We no longer need to be improved and perfected in order to be worthy of hospitality. We get to just be ourselves. We are each unique, wonderful children of the universe. No one else is like that. We are miracles, improbable of ever even existing, each of us. It was so unlikely that we would be born. And we each have bits of wisdom in us that we can offer the whole. But first we have to honor that wisdom in ourselves so we feel like we could honor the whole. Each of us is Worthy of love and respect and belonging right now, this minute. No improvements are necessary. You are worthy of love, all of you. Even if you were late this morning, even if you accidentally bumped into someone on your way here, even if you have a stain on your shirt or your clothes don't match, even if you ate too much of the wrong thing at breakfast this morning, if you are thin or fat, happy or sad, irritable or gracious, working hard or barely working, you are worthy of hospitality, of kindness, of care, and generosity. And you deserve this from yourself. I just want us to take a moment and give ourselves a moment of hospitality. I would like you to take a deep breath, and I want you to spend more time breathing out than breathing in. So take a deep breath and breathe it out. Let your breath completely out. Let go. And then I want you just to take a moment to notice yourself. Just scan your body your mood, your thoughts, just notice yourself in this moment. Notice what you feel and what you think. And try not to judge any of what you think or feel. It's good or bad, it just is. But if you do, there's really no problem. Just notice you're judging yourself today. And if you are really disliking this exercise and it's making you super uncomfortable, you know, just notice that too. I want you to find inside yourself that place where you feel love. Is it in your heart? In your belly? Is it in your throat? Is it in your fingertips? Where does love come from in your body? I want you to gather it up and feel it sparkle. Feel its warmth. Now take that love and let it hug you. If that doesn't feel quite right, Use that love to give yourself a little moment of kindness or compassion. Some acceptance for just who you are. Welcome yourself just as you are right now to this day, to this earth, to this congregation, to this place. And don't set any conditions on your hospitality. 
Welcome yourself here to this day, even if you haven't lost those pounds, exercised recently, started a meditation practice, called your congressman since last November, called your friend, child, parent, cleaned your house or cleared your yard. Just welcome yourself. Welcome to all of you. I know nothing about the culture that the Dalai Lama lives in and how it could be possible that he doesn't know about the suffering of self-hatred, but I do know something about our culture and why we might feel more unworthy and as if we are not good enough than people in other cultures. Consumer culture is the absolute worst. Advertisement after advertisement tells us what could or is wrong with us. Our breath, our body odor, our shape, our wrinkles, our hair. In advertisements, social media, TV shows, and movies, we are given images of how we should be, which is young, clean, beautiful, thin, usually white. We learn that the best lives should be lived in big houses, with wonderful cars, surrounded by great furniture and art and dishes and the best smelling soap. <laughs> we could have fabulous experiences that go to the best plays and concerts and classes. We should travel to amazing and exotic places. We are trained, and let me tell you, I have a nine-year-old, and it is from the youngest ages, that stuff and Certain kinds of experiences will give us meaning and happiness. And of course, most people can't afford the package of good and experiences that the industry, or whoever that is, tells us would give us such satisfaction. So, then our culture tells us that earning power is based on individual abilities and choices. If we can't afford the big package of food and experiences, it's our fault for not having done the right thing and made the right choices. So then there comes in all this self-doubt and self-hate. And if we are able to afford some of that package and expect real meaning and happiness from the big house and the great vacation, we usually end up disappointed because that isn't really what creates meaning and happiness. So when we don't experience that happiness, it's easy to believe we just aren't doing it right. We must have made the wrong choices. We should have gone to Thailand rather than Poland. We should have had that Starbucks caramel macchiato instead of the vanilla latte. <laughs> Maybe our spiritual practice is writing poems instead of meditation because that's not working so well. So maybe it would be better if we just did different things and we would have a happier, fuller life. In the spring, Black Lives UU asked congregations to hold white supremacist culture teachings. I preached on white supremacist culture then. BLUU asked again that congregations hold white supremacist teachings both this weekend and last weekend and our congregation found out too late. But by grace, the service last week on immigrant justice was exactly that. We discovered the pain and fear immigrants experience every day in our society. And they are victims of a culture that values white-skinned people over people of color. And this sermon, it turns out, is also about the pain caused by white supremacist culture. 
The dominant culture in the U.S. was created over hundreds of years in Northern Europe. And it is a, it is a version of that culture that we still live in today. It was a culture that made genocide, slavery, and stealing of indigenous land and resources possible. The culture keeps white people in places of privilege and power to this day. So it's one purpose of this culture we, we got to inherit has been domination. It has ways of getting inside people and making them feel unworthy and thus are more easily dominated. And perfectionism is one of the ways that our culture beats us down. Perfectionism sets a standard for everything that does not, and everything that does not need it is inadequate and must be fixed. This is the focus of so many organizations. How do we fix what's wrong? And how do we make it exceptional or perfect? Perfectionism also says that mistakes are bad, and even worse, that the people who make the mistakes are bad and have something wrong with them. That's the only reason you would make a mistake in our culture of perfection. This mistake wasn't just a mistake, but a judgment on people, on persons. And these attitudes aren't just out there, they get in our psyche. Perfectionism actually makes consumerism possible. A culture of perfection makes consumerism possible. There's always a better, more perfect way to live. And it can be bought if you have enough money. And if you don't, well, you make mistakes or something's terribly wrong with you and you just don't deserve it. You can see why perfectionism is a very effective tool when your goal is taking resources from others. You just convince people they aren't good enough to get a fair share of the resources and most of your work is done. Perfectionism also keeps people trying to improve themselves. We all want to be smarter, better. In the U.S., we have an absolute obsession with improving our bodies. We want to be stronger, more fit, and thinner. We want lower cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood sugar. We want to feel better in our bodies. We want them to do more. We want to decrease the likelihood of getting cancer or autoimmune diseases or the common cold. We seek perfect, attractive bodies defined by the fashion industry or that perfect body that medical experts say is most likely to live a long time. We try to improve in other ways as well, in knowledge, in understanding, in compassion, in joy, being a better activist, ally, parent, spouse, sibling, friend, employee, or church member. It can be so exhausting to be an American today. We have to try so hard to be good and to live life perfectly so you will feel worthy of love and belonging. Most of us don't believe in heaven and hell or a God that decides our eternal, eternal fate based on a very narrow set of rules. But in the United States today, it can be difficult to tell that this theology has actually died. People want a heaven of happiness and joy and contentment, but feel they must work very hard to be worthy and to buy such a heaven. 
And if they mess up, there is the hell of unworthiness and self-hatred. Americans haven't moved psychologically very far from Calvinism, even if we gave up the theology some time ago. We all desperately need hospitality. We need to be welcomed, as we are right now, in all the ways that we are completely and totally imperfect, and in all the ways that we are beautiful and wondrous, carrying remarkable gifts and wisdom. We need care and kindness when we are tired or ill or hurt or bewildered. We need acceptance and gentleness when we hurt or when we made a mistake or we caused someone pain. And the hospitality we most need is our own. Let us each open the door to ourselves. Let's invite ourselves in for tea and something sweet. Let's listen gently and quietly with an open heart and share our pains and our fears and our struggles and joys, what we are ashamed of and guilty of, what we most hope for. Most of us won't find it particularly easy. I don't. There is this drive to be better and do better and to punish ourselves if we don't need some standard. And this is a pattern that it's very easy to get stuck inside. Fortunately, there is some wonderful wisdom out there on how to counter lovingly these tendencies and offer ourselves genuine hospitality. Tara Barak, in her book, Radical Self-Acceptance, teaches noting ourselves in the moment with all of our flaws and gifts and then accepting completely all aspects of who we are. Kristen Ness teaches self-compassion. In this practice of self-compassion, we treat ourselves kindly when we fail or act in ways we don't like or when we suffer. We do not deny the reality of the situation, but we offer ourselves some gentleness for it. And then we remember that we are not alone in how we are feeling or what we have done. We are human beings, and others have gone through the same experiences and suffering and feelings that we have. We are part of the human family. We are not bad people, and we are not unlucky people. We are just human people. And finally, in this practice of self-compassion, we are mindful of our emotions. We experience our pain, but we do not exaggerate our pain. We feel our disappointment, but we also let that feeling just flow through us instead of grabbing onto it and chewing it for days and weeks and years about this terrible thing that happened where we did. So earlier we tried a meditation that was based loosely on the self-acceptance practices of Tara Brock's work. Now I want us to try a practice of self-compassion, and this meditation was written by Kristen Nass. So I want you to take a moment, and I want you to consider something in your life 
that is causing you stress or suffering, perhaps something that frustrates you about yourself. And I want you to say silently to yourself, this is a moment of suffering. I am hurting. Say to yourself silently, suffering is a part of life, and I am not alone. Now put your hands over your heart. Feel their warmth and gentleness there. And say to yourself silently, silently, may I be kind to myself. You may also ask yourself, what do I need to hear now to treat myself kindly in this moment? Perhaps you need just a little more compassion and acceptance from yourself. Maybe you need a reminder to forgive yourself. Maybe you need to remind yourself to be strong or patient. Each of you is a wonderful and unique person. You will never be perfect. But you have a Buddha nature. And that is enough. Thank you, Reverend Tracy. And I think we've got quite a little bit of time for some questions. So, time to ask. So, my name is Hospitality, so I have a lot to say on this topic. I don't want to come up close to you. I, I, you might actually have to cut me off. I have a lot to say on this topic. <laughs> giving you two minutes here. All right, go. Two minutes. Somebody's going to have to time me. Um, so, my parents spent many years in Europe. They spoke many languages, and they happened to meet a woman from Yugoslavia with the name Ksenia, and they kept it for later. They named my older sister Sophia, well, Samantha Sophia, and uh, they gave me this name, which has been a mixed blessing. Um, I've actually gotten really tired of it lately because I have to explain it every day. Anytime I leave the house, I know that's going to be a day when somebody asks me, what does it mean? Where is it from? How did you get it? Why is it so weird? Well, I'm from Berkeley. That's my excuse. Um, everybody from Berkeley either has a hippie name, like Rainbow, or a foreign name, like Spania. Um, and, and what, you know, how do you say it? And everybody struggles. There are a lot of people in my family who still can't pronounce it. So I've gotten really tired of it. But when I look at the legacy of what it means, it's, it's huge. Um, it's the reason I speak five languages. It's, it's the reason why I've hosted so many exchange students. And my first husband was an immigrant who needed a green card, frankly. Um, and uh, the reason I've you know, gotten into couch surfing and all kinds of crazy things like that, just meeting strangers all the time. And it doesn't even feel like that's me. My sister is the one who's social, and and I'm the one who's bookish, and, and yet her name is Sophia, which means wisdom, and my name is Kenya, which means hospitality. But she's the one who likes parties, and she has a degree in social work, and anyway. So, like I said earlier, this year has been quite a challenge, and it's hard. it's been hard to keep meeting new people and being hospitable and trusting and being open and opening my heart after having had my heart broken three times this year. and um, So I haven't, the jury's still out. I still haven't completely decided whether or not to keep this name, but it's something that my parents gave me, and my dad had a stroke this year, and my mom died when I was a kid, so 
I don't want to dishonor them by giving it up, and so I'm just trying to appreciate what it has given me. Tracy and I had this conversation the other day, but uh, we were talking about everybody wants to be the perfect parent, especially with the first one. And I remember I was lamenting over something I'd done wrong with my child. I can't remember what it was all these years, but a friend, a good friend of mine was very wise, and she said, you know what? Nobody ever had a perfect parent, but there sure are a lot of nice people in the world. During the first half of your talk, I kept thinking of a certain friend of mine and realizing that what the, the two things that make her such a great friend are, first of all, she thinks I'm completely delightful always. <laughs> I recommend you look for this in a friend. <laughs> but also, um, because the bottom line is that she thinks I'm great, um, she's very wise about my flaws and when I'm feeling down on myself and, and, and feeling that self-hatred, the kind of self-hatred that's not constructive but is just, you know, tearing you down and making you worse, she, she has the wisdom to know what I'm talking about and that the negative things I'm saying are actually not false, but she loves me anyway, and she knows there's a part of me that is perfectly capable of working on those things if I'm in a strong enough place to be working on anything, which if I'm, you know, beating myself with a baseball bat, I'm not in good place. And I can reflect that and do the same for her when she's in that place, which she often is. Although she's a completely delightful person, and I have no idea why she's ever sat down on herself. So we do this for each other. And the whole thing about hospitality, I hadn't thought of it with that word before, but the reason I was thinking of my friend is that that's, that's what I call friendship and being a good friend to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I right. often say to that friend, and I say to a lot of people, I think I've said to you, Reverend Tracy, um, what... Treat, treat yourself with the same kindness that you're so good at treating other people with. And, you know, you always know the right thing to say if it's somebody else's problem. Say it to yourself. Yeah. And we do call it being, being a friend to ourselves. That is something. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. We talked a little bit today about the sense of, of hospitality toward enemies and toward the people who maybe do not share the same ideas and beliefs as you. What are some of the ways that we can maintain that compassion and sense of genuine sincerity and hospitality from people that cause you suffering? That is a difficult question. I think it takes time. I think at first when um, you're so angry and hurt that you need to offer yourself compassion for that and that and that once you are offering yourself compassion and sort of healing that hurt and pain, it becomes a little easier to be open to that person. Um, I have some people in my life with whom it is no longer possible to be in relationships because of their difficulties and crossing boundaries. And so um, I read something that was so helpful about that, which was, you know, one way to be hospitable to people 
is to give them the space to just be that. And not, that doesn't mean you interact with them. You have to have boundaries to protect yourself. That's self-love. But um, it just, you know, they're over there. You're giving them space and they're being their difficult selves. Instead of being in battle with them, which isn't necessarily going to help you out. And, and I think it's different. It depends on the kind of hurt and suffering that's been caused. I mean, it just totally matters. Um, because there's some things, like I really feel like one of the things that's wrong in our society right now is that we have, like, made enemies of all these different camps. Everybody's in conflict with each other. And I think we have to get across those lines and offer hospitality and be able to hear and see people but when they're not their labels, you know, not that they're, you know, an NRA carrying Republican, you know, that that isn't who they are. <laughs> That's some features of how they think about the world. That is not who they are. And so learning to, to open up and, and see the feelings and emotions and the stories that created people to be the way they are, I think is really, really helpful. Um, so it really depends on the kind of hurt and suffering I think. A couple things. Um, you were talking about um, trying to always be perfect, and I find I rarely make mistakes because I never act, because I'm afraid of making a mistake. You know, so that's tough for me because I'm my hardest critic. And then the other thing that's difficult, too, is when I do something good and I get praise from somebody, I generally deflect it and, well, you know, that was... That was an anomaly. I'm not usually that good or whatever, you know, that, you know, you don't take credit for when you do something right. And it's tough to, to let yourself do that sometimes. And I think, I didn't mention this in the sermon, that is one of the other really bad things about perfectionism, actually, is that we don't become whole in the world. We don't do things that make us uncomfortable. We don't do things where we might really screw up because it is too painful and difficult to take on the self beating that we're going to give ourselves afterwards. And so to really be self-accepting actually allows us a bigger space to be in the world and do the things that we're called to do and be. probably makes it a little easier to talk to people who are pretty different than us because we're not so terrified of making a mistake and messing it up and having a fight and breaking the peace and all the things that are true. So I think it's pretty, I think that's a super great point. Um, yesterday, I had a very, very minor uh, car accident, which I've never had before. This was a first, and I knew exactly what to do, and I did none of it. <laughs> none of it. And, and I, but I did, you know, I did connect with the person who, whose car I you know, scraped a little bit. But coming home from that encounter, she was very pleasant. It was like a switch in me snapped into four-part disharmony because it all came out of the hat. And, you know, so what I'm learning, what I'm learning is that this is what I do, okay? This is how I am. I'm anxious, and boy, if if I make a mistake, whambo, you know? Um, But I'm learning that that's who I am, and that's exactly what I have to work with. And it takes time. And um, you know what? I'm not alone. <laughs> I think that's huge to remember you're not alone. I think um, and one of the things that's difficult about white supremacist culture is the sense of individualism that's so strong. And when you have done something wrong or you've done something you don't approve of or 
um, you're suffering in some way, that you really end up feeling like, you know, like it's you. It's like you're there all by yourself instead of in the world with the people who also are struggling. Several years ago, I had a had an epiphany because I I have a way of sitting around and saying, get getting myself up because I'm not able to get something done that I'm not able to do it. And it struck me at that time that, oh, I don't know how to do this. What I have to do is <laughs> learn. And that took care of that that time. And once in a while, I still remember that, but I still have to learn to remember it every time. <laughs> There are many questions, and if we do end up uh, having to wrap it up at our time that we do wrap it up, uh, Chrissy will stay and answer our questions in the sanctuary afterwards. So it's been a rough year for me as well. My daughter in the summer developed full-blown OCD, and it got really scary. So we're getting a lot of therapy and stuff, but it's been very interesting because OCD, the therapy is learning how to distinguish the OCD thoughts and then and yelling at them and getting them, you know, getting control of them and telling you. So in a way, it's like anti-hospitality. You're, you're trying to find these thoughts that you shouldn't be having and, and, and let them know, hey, I'm not going to follow you. You're not in charge. I'm going to, you know. But one of the things in this book I was reading that said, you know, trying to get your kids to think, okay, so is this OCD? Is this me? And, you know, and learning to say to them, I think that's the OCD talking. And it says, you know, ask them, hey, is that a thought that you would ever want your friend to have? And that's if they say no, if you can say to yourself no, then you can say, well, that's OCD then. It's not you, it's the OCD. So it's been very enlightening, but struggling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm really struck at the Dalai Lama not knowing about self-hatred and how that runs counter to this idea that it's part of the human condition. And so I'm just so appreciating you bringing in the white supremacist culture that is so ingrained in us and ingrained in us as Unitarian Universalists as in our heritage. And sometimes I read things by Emerson or Thoreau and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, they were struggling with the same things I am. See, it must be part of the human condition. But this is lifting up that it's not, that it's been enculturated into us and that there is freedom and liberation possible from this. I think that's really true. I mean, if you read Calvinism at all, like, it's just part of that whole, it's for that. When I was in my 20s, I got to be in the room with the Dalai Lama. I was in the back of a big amphitheater with 30,000 people watching him. He's a little person up on the stage. And I will tell you, it was powerful. And if you've been the, in, you know, a god since you were two, you probably don't have a lot of self-hatred, and you probably really don't get it. Think about it for just one second. Well, well just, just to go back a little bit to the Buddhist philosophy, uh, one of the teachings of the Buddhist teachers is that when you're having all these feelings of self-doubt or anger or whatever it is, to just name it. One word, anger, jealousy, self-loathing, whatever, and it's amazing how that distances you from it and frees you from it, just to name it. And it's a kind of, with, without judgment. It has to be without judgment. Maybe the Dalai Lama's been taught to do that since he was a little guy. He meditates five hours a day. I just read this. He meditates five hours a day, and he has lots of, kind of these intricate meditations, he says. I imagine that he does live in a very different consciousness than everyone else. 
Thank you. I think we have finished our time. Thank you so much, Tracy.